Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm Maria Menunos, and you're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Yes, welcome to a very special Marvel TV Weekly. I'm Christian Blatt. And I'm Zia Anderson. And we have the distinct pleasure of uh, being joined by, here in the studio, by the way, by two of the creative forces behind a lot of our childhoods, uh, Eric and Julia Leewald from X-Men, the animated series. Welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks, Christian. Thank you. And as you can see clearly on display, uh, Eric has written a book, which uh, I have read and I strongly recommend, the the previously on X-Men, The Making of an Animated Series, and uh, just go on Amazon and find it. I feel like that's the easiest way to to get a hold of it. And uh, it's a a fascinating look at the making of a show that Zia, myself, and so many people that we know and we've done any of these Marvel shows with, that that show is so important to us. But it's also just interesting about like, oh, this is what it was like working in children's television in 1992 before shows like this and before Batman the Animated Series, you know. And uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, all of those things. But I I feel like the, the important thing to start with is the title of the book, Eric, because... It is the first thing that we would see on uh, not every, but almost every episode, or we, I guess until the last season, we we didn't get it as much. Right? That was absolutely the the, the season for us because uh, it was, to, to us it's like space, the final frontier. Right. Absolutely, it's what every fan <laughs> hears first, and oh, the show's on. Yeah, and believe it or not, with our publisher who weren't fans, but they just they they publish uh, pop culture books, but they weren't specific fans of this book. They said, you know, I don't know about that. I think, you know, if you should start with X Men because then it'll, it'll, you know, Google will have it easier to find. So, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Previously, everybody's going to get previously, <laughs> right? And every fan gets it. Well, it's funny because there's always that sort of advice. Like I remember in the in the world of comic books, there were the Avengers and the West Coast Avengers. And at one point, they were like, "No, you have to call them Avengers West Coast," which makes no sense, <laughs> but because then you can put it right next to Avengers on the shelf. Yeah. And it's like, I guess so. This is sort of like the modern day version of that. It's like, well, if it doesn't say X Men, but uh, if you Google X Men book, this this is going to it's come up. Still going to pop yeah, up. Yeah. Exactly. I don't think that's going to be. An issue. Yeah, and uh, so we definitely want to talk about the beginnings of the series and how you both got involved, but uh, I think it's fun to sort of take a moment for each of us to talk a little bit about our personal association with the show, and Zia, uh, I I know from talking to you, but uh, talk a little bit about what X-Men the Animated Series meant to you. Um, That was a show that I watched growing up, Saturday morning cartoons, watching that with my cousins. That was before I even started reading any comic books. This is what got me into comic book and comic book movies. It was the start of everything for me. It was X-Men and the Animated Series. And then Batman, but that was after. Right. <laughs> well, and we have heard from, startlingly for us, again, being writers, we tended to be off in offices and not around real people most of the time. But <laughs> here we are a few years later. And we have heard from a lot of people that that's the way in mm-hmm. to the Marvel Universe was through X-Men, the animated series. Yeah. That's how they discovered the world of the X-Men comics, which were huge at the time. Huge. 
but they were huge in the universe of comic book readers. It was the animated series that introduced a lot of folks to that. Right, universe. and comic book readers in 1992, it was a much different group than it is in 2020. Yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a little bit more celebrated now than it was. And obviously a lot of people, a lot of people will make the point yeah. that the, the animated series being as huge as it was, that's why we got the X-Men film series starting in 2000, you know. And I, so I think if this hadn't been great, we wouldn't have gotten uh, mm-hmm. those movies either. And for me, I was already a fan of the comics, but my little sister really liked the show and i let her read my comics which was like we have to hold it like this and you know (laughs) don't eat you know it was there were a lot of rules especially because you know look x-men comics are a little bit valuable at least back then so uh but i but you know and that's sort of you know for her but uh let's see i think so I, i started college in 1994 so i was like I had a VCR in my dorm room. I'm like, I'm recording it, but let me just, uh, you know, eh, not going to watch it with my roommates in there. But <laughs> it was on the football team. But th- th- that's 1994. It's like, well, you can't you can't be so proudly, uh, you know, a-, a nerd, as it were. So I just let people make fun of me. It's like my first, yeah, well, <laughs> my first week of college, I think, was when the the Phoenix Saga aired, like, during the week. And right. I was like, oh, wow. I, got, I, was like I got to record all those, make sure that I see it. And so it was, like, very important that, like, when I went to college, I'm like, well, I, I, I need to make sure I keep up on the show. So uh, that being said, I wanted to start with you, Eric, because obviously you were involved first. Mm-hmm. What was your knowledge of the X-Men and how did you get involved in this project? <sighs> well, thanks for asking. It's always a little <laughs> embarrassing to reveal one's lack of right. <laughs> erudition. And, but yeah, as, as, since you read the book, you know my admission that I got a call on a, uh, a Sunday night saying, oh, you're going to do the X-Men series. And I said, um, that's a comic book, right? <laughs> And I, you know, I when I grew up, you know, in, in the '60s, I read some, you know, fair amount of Marvel, you sure. know, uh, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, whatever. But I didn't really know the X-Men at all. It just happened that the people at Fox who were high on this show picked me for the the tone of my writing rather than the knowledge. So the guy that that laid out the first two seasons with me, Mark Edens. Uh, neither one of us knew the X-Men. So we had to spend the first four or five days just asking everybody that knew them and getting stacks and stacks of Xeroxes of uh, the X-Men universe so that it was like reading the encyclopedia of a 30-year history so that we know who to write about. Right, but, because, of course, in 1992, you couldn't sit down and there Google... Was, there what, was no what, web. There was right? no web. You couldn't type in X-Men. You had to just find out. And as we were talking beforehand, you know going down to the comic book store and like, oh, let's buy some X-Men comics. Well, X-Men comics tended to be very expensive. So, you know, the older issues. So it, it was not that easily done. And uh, But I know that you did have people involved in the project from at least fairly early on who were well-versed in it. I'm oh, sure that helped. absolutely. Uh, Larry Houston, who, right. was, who was our uh, director of the first 65 episodes and uh, was in charge uh, of all the storyboards, mm-hmm. he knew everything about the X-Men. Will Minio, who was the in charge basically of the design of the show and 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 the the, the tone of the show he knew the x-men well most of the art staff knew them well and one or two of our writers that we hired to help with the stories did but uh so the, there was no lack of people also marvel was there uh but you know it was a small company they didn't really set somebody aside to help us with this. Poor Bob Harris, who was running three or four books at the time, which is like seventy hours of yeah, responsibility. Yeah, he was. He was actually the editor of of the you know the X Men uh, books. Yeah, right, right at the time, 
she would have, I would fax, well, you know, it's before email. Of course. <laughs> I, I would fax him 10 questions, you know, would Wolverine do this? Would Storm be afraid of that? Questions to make sure I got the characters right. And he would take time off in his copious spare time to, to make sure that we had the canon correct because he'd spent, yeah, he, he spent years being in charge of them. Sure. And he really knew them backwards and forwards. He was in New York at the time, as was Marvel itself. And again, going way back, when you say you faxed it to him, we would get in the car, drive to the CVS pharmacy, <laughs> pay our dollar fifty, and fax each page that way. If our fax was broken, which right, happens sometimes. Because this wow. is that level of technology, yeah. and I still have the receipt for one of those expeditions. <laughs> That's amazing. And it was not easy if the offices, the time difference, and the offices in New York closing versus the office in Los Angeles. Yeah. Things would shut down on Friday, and you were on your own. Not that many people had cell phones, so you, you didn't want to be intrusive. So if, if there was a problem that happened late on Friday, you'd have to sweat the weekend and <laughs> yeah. ask on Monday. Right, exactly. Uh, and then so obviously, as the book talks about, the X-Men as a property was, uh, you know, there was a real champion for the project, uh, Margaret Lesh, who was the president of uh, the Fox Children's Network. And she had worked for Marvel on the animation side before and had worked very hard to get the X-Men on TV. Mm-hmm. And she was I- involved in sort of the false start for an animated X-Men series, uh, which was called Pride of the X-Men, right. which uh, we were talking just before. It looks beautiful. Yes, it does. And uh, I will say the, the there are two advantages that it had to the, the series that you were able to do. One, Wolverine had the brown suit. I always hated the yellow one. And two, Kitty Pride was in it. That's right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. A, okay. I was always a tremendous fan of Kitty Pride. However, there were a lot of ways where I don't know I, I was like 13 14 when that aired and I was very excited and then I was like oh that wasn't really what I wanted you know <laughs> it, it was just like it, it looked cool and and it sort of like stopped there uh, what had she learned and what did she impart to to everyone involved about here's what we learned from that process here's what we have to not do when we try again yeah yeah I, th- I think the what she learned was she had to get the power, the strength, or the leverage, or the political will to trust her core creative people, because the, there were some core creative people on Pride that knew the books and wouldn't have written Pride the way it was written. Larry Houston, Larry and Houston, Will Minio, Bill Minio, Rick Hoberg was there. A, a number of people that ended up working on our show for a long time. Uh, but the problem was, at the time, none of them really had the leverage to tell very, you know, say merchandising people or marketing people or you know, there were there were a dozen folks from Marvel or from Marvel Productions or for, who knows you know partners that said oh no 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 we need to add this character we uh, we need to add that, that character and those people were able, they're just again too many cooks spoil the broth all those people had had some input sometimes input can be helpful but most of the time, if you've got a, a show like this, you, you, if you're trying to keep it online, that stuff can really throw you offline, and it can and can, can hurt it. So that was that was a problem there. They didn't have the people like Will and Larry didn't didn't have the ability to say no to somebody maybe that was putting up part of the money. And above them, there were people who were making decisions that at that time they could not fight and one of those was what was one of the biggest movies 1980 89 crocodile dundee oh my which you don't necessarily know this zia Uh, in that animated (laughs) series uh wolverine has an australian accent 
which he had previously had on Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. So I I never understood why that was. And then, of course, the irony being that they hire an Australian to play Wolverine (laughs) in the film version, but he has to do an American accent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it was just like, so why does this Canadian guy have an Australian accent? So weird. That was one of those decisions made higher up that they couldn't undo until Margaret Lesh herself was the top of the food chain at Fox Kids. So there you go. That's one example. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a great example because there's really no reason for it. Except kids love Crocodile Dundee. I, I mean, yeah. I get, I look, it's true. Sure. I, 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 did, no, I did like Crocodile Dundee a lot, actually. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. But I didn't, need, um, I didn't need Wolverine to sound like him. No, of exactly. course not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, coming into you know the early stages of the X-Men, the animated series, um, how much input did Marvel Comics have, and how much did that impact you know writing in the, those early, the beginning? Yeah. Interestingly, they, the, this is the, probably the only time in their history, certainly not now, they didn't have final say. Fox had final say. It was Fox's oh, wow. show. Interesting. And so the guys at Marvel might send me 15 notes, and I'd say, well, I like nine of them, but I don't like these other six. Uh, sorry, we're going to keep them. And Marvel had no no leverage to insist. So it was, they were incredibly helpful, and those of, we really wanted to be true to the books. We mm-hmm. didn't want it to be something, some twist on the X-Men. We wanted it to be the real X-Men, those of us that were writing it. So we constantly were asking them for stuff, and we, the most frustrating thing was uh, it took so long to get stuff from New York. We'd yeah. say, we need to see this, these, this series of three books. They'd send us a Xerox snail mail, and we'd come 10 days later and be too oh. late. We'd already yeah. have to have the script in. Oh, no. So, so we were actually wanting more inform- raw information from them so we could make story decisions versus them dictating. Now, as I say, nowadays, I assume that the people at Marvel micromanage every beat of every story of everything that goes out, which yeah. is their right. They, you know, yeah. they own it. But... When we were dealing with it, they were a much smaller company, and they were headed toward bankruptcy. But most importantly, they had never really had a very successful TV show before. And there were no Marvel movies, so they didn't know if Hollywood was going to screw this up again. You're, you're of course, discounting the 1990 Captain America starring Chris Allen. But you're doing that for a good reason. You're discounting that. No, really. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, look, their successes were, like, the Incredible Hulk TV series, which was not like the Incredible Hulk comics. You know, I mean, it was was really the fugitive where he happened to turn into the Hulk for, I don't know, eight minutes an episode, not even. So, yeah, and I think that, uh, as as a kid, my, my way in to comic characters was Saturday morning even though some of those shows weren't as great I mean I've I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter and uh, what I've felt comfortable watching with them so far is uh, Spider-Man is Amazing Friends because I feel like that's great for that age uh, I I I worry about uh, showing them your show too soon because then they'll be horrified and not want to watch it. And it's the same reason why they haven't seen Star Wars yet. You know, it's like I got to pick the right time, and I, I think that those things are great for for much younger audiences. But you know, taking something like the X Men, were you to do it for a younger audience, it, it clearly it wouldn't work because of how sophisticated the stories yeah. and the the universes really were. And I'm just sort of wondering how much of that was in mind, you know, as it's being put together. That it's like, yes, it's a Saturday morning, but this this isn't you know, this isn't for what would now be, you know, more like your Nick Junior, Disney Junior right. age group. Yeah. Well, and again, going way back, uh, Fox TV, Fox Network itself, 
for folks who don't remember, ABC, NBC, CBS, that used to be the three major networks on broadcast TV. Fox TV was a baby weblet network, and it only aired for a few hours a day. And they were trying to sort of make their mark in, in the world of broadcasting. Just to, to give a, a, a little bit of uh, context, when you guys uh, started the show, uh, The Simpsons, I believe, was in season two, and it's oh on season God. 30. Right. Yeah. So, wow. It might be season three, but yes. same difference, yeah. But but that was one yeah. of Fox's uh, big things at yeah. that time. But to get so noticed. With yeah. um, Margaret Lesh, one of her uh, imperatives was to make a mark, you know, cut through the noise and, and get eyes on Fox Kids. Yeah, and, and she thought, well, uh, some of the other networks have the softer, uh, more uh, girl-oriented stuff, to, and we, we'll, we'll, we'll make this tougher, more harder-edged. But I think what it, where it came from, the fact that we really wrote it from adults to adults, was there were half a dozen of us that were core creatives, and we all had the same idea. We were looking at the comic, comic books in the in 1992 were ferocious. They, they were just like these these massive, sweaty, muscular beings ripping the hell out of each other. So obviously, we were much toned down from the comic books. Yeah. But you know, one of the first discussions I had with Margaret was these are a bunch of 25 to 30 year olds mostly. One guy's 55. Wolverine's 95. Yeah. We have one teenager, but these are basically adults with serious adult problems mm-hmm. with serious with stuff at stake. And none of us in the creative core, artists or writers, liked play-acting violence. And that was the reason we killed Morph in the first story, was to show that there was, there was uh, consequences to the, being heroic. There were consequences right. to being an X-Men. And so, interesting that you ask about the adult level. Until the show uh, premiered properly in January. It had a couple previews, sure. but properly in January, and it was obvious it was this huge number one hit. Almost everybody involved with the show, uh, uh, advertisers, people with local TV stations were going to have to run it. They were given uh, previews, uh, you know, art and s- scripts to look at. And so, and they were freaking out. They said, what is this, all this adult stuff? This is like for 10 o'clock at night. You know, yeah. Kids are going to turn this off, and they run away in droves. I can't sell toys and cereal and pajamas to, to get with these stories. What are you doing? Margaret protected us. She kept. The, she fought all those fights mm-hmm. and said, no, I believe in the people drawing this and writing this. Stay back. Be patient. If it fails, it fails. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll admit to it. But she, there was great pressure. Because it takes from the time you write the story to it comes out maybe seven, eight months. And during that time, everybody with a stake in it worries. Yeah. Because you don't know if it's going to be, you know, people, sure. no one in Hollywood knows if anything's ever going to work. Mm-hmm. There's no sur- sure things. Sequels usually are terrible. <laughs> yeah, so you think, oh, I've got a pattern, you know, I've got a formula here. I'll just do it again and it'll be wonderful again. The magic of something working is really rare. So everybody with this, you know, looks at the stuff. They they get nervous. They it's their money. It's their investors' money. Whatever, and they feel they have to fix it even you know before it comes on the air. And we and there were lots and lots of fights to keep it serious and keep it adult. And well, as a writer on it, I'm, what our marching orders were: you do not write down to kids on this show. You write up. You're writing up. And we were all thinking of it as a half-hour animated show that, in our hearts, was an hour-long live-action drama. That was what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, and, and we all agree, and we've 
we've each worked on about 40 different shows. Our friend Larry's worked on 70-some. Yeah. Uh, almost every time the executives say, well, you're writing for, you know, six to 11-year-olds. They're not going to understand, and they give you a long list of things that, that you've put in your story. And we want to shake them and say, do you not remember being 11? Yeah. That if your 14-year-old older brother or sister loved something, you would aspire to that. Mm -hmm. But if you thought something was a little bit too young for you, you turn it off in a second. So writing too old brings the young people up. Yeah, it, and, yeah. and that's one of the quotes that uh, I, I isolated from the book is this idea that you don't write down to children because as someone who was the product of a lot of children's television where they did write down to me, you know, uh, just to, a, a perfect example would be like the Super Friends. Where these yeah. were all these characters that I knew, but at the end of every episode they all had to laugh. And that was like the Hanna-Barbera book. It's like, well, everybody's got to laugh at the end of the I don't, it's like, But it's not funny. Even as a kid, I'm like, why are they laughing? I would ask my mom why they're laughing. And she's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, nobody likes, nobody likes Scrappy Dude. I don't know why they're laughing. And, you know, to, to find, and it, it really, it was out of my childhood when shows started actually not writing down to kids. And, you know, I mean, the, the shows that my kids watch now, I'm like, oh, even this, there is at least a little bit of a sense of humor sometimes that's like, well, your parents are probably in the room. Let's not make them want to, you know, take knitting needles and jam them into their ears so they don't have to hear yeah. the show. And I, I think that that's very important. And it was very clear that that's what was done with this show and I think that's that's why I liked it but at the same time to your point my middle sister who's seven years younger than me she was very excited in watching the same show that uh, that I watched that we would always mm -hmm. watch together and I think that you know there there weren't a lot of great examples uh, you know prior to that that uh, you know you, you, you could get the, the same audience with um, one of the things that, that I was sort of uh, thinking of when you were talking about Marvel's involvement I sort of always assumed that the specific lineup that ended up being the X-Men was to reflect who was in the comics at the time. That's why all of a sudden, uh, I know there's a, there's a great appearance later in the series by Nightcrawler, but at the by, between uh, airing Pride of the X-Men and the premiere of your show, uh, Kitty, Nightcrawler, Colossus all go off to Excalibur. And then you have these other characters who are all very interesting. Right. Uh, you know, the most noted, the flashiest being Gambit. Yeah. And, uh, and oh, all Gambit. of a sudden, yeah, right, exactly. And so it was like, Oh, okay, yeah, these are these these aren't my favorite X Men, but I I still liked them. And uh, let me speak on behalf of uh, my wife, who's Chinese American. She and her younger sister they loved that Jubilee was on TV, right? Uh, because there there weren't a lot of examples. Uh, sure. You know, I mean, uh, there there were not a lot of Asian characters on TV. And um, my wife's sister. Her kind of go-to cosplay slash Halloween costume when she doesn't have anything is she has the yellow raincoat, so she often goes as oh, Jubilee. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, and just to that point quickly, as fellow female here at the table, look back on it. The members of the team, it, it happened to split down the middle, but women and men on the team, and if you look at them closely, the women, in my opinion, kind of had the cooler powers because they're the only ones who can fly. Oh, technically. yeah. Yeah. When and it wasn't written like, oh, don't fly because it'll hurt Wolverine's feelings or don't be powerful because, you know, yeah. it, the, it was just kick ass yeah. everybody. I, yeah, I mean, Gambit's essentially a, a fancy blackjack dealer. Very fancy. Yeah, definitely as a kid growing up, I mean, I ran around and pretended to be Storm all the, with my cousins all the time, like trying to roll my eyes in the back of my head. Like that was the character I played as. Was that something that you did on purpose, like creating these strong female characters or did it just... It, to be honest, um, as say Mark Edens and I, he's, he's a friend from college and we've written together on a dozen different shows and started in college um 
when we sat down to try to, they, they told us you need to lay out the first 13 stories. And at the opening meeting, various people, Marvel, uh, Fox, everybody had a word in it. Okay, who, which X Men? There's 24 to pick. 24 to pick from. Yeah. Uh, which ones do we focus on? And so everybody agreed on three or four right away. Uh, 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 um, not Colossus, Cyclops, and Professor X, and uh, Wolverine. Obviously, Wolverine. Sure. And I think Storm and Rogue were all just kind of agreed on. Poof. And then they said, well, Gambit and Jubilee. Are current are we're just started to be popular in the comics. Let's focus on them. Okay, so we're set there, and we realized as we're starting to write the stories, Mark and I did trying to lay them out. There's three other characters that kept on wanting to be part of it uh, that we were told we could use, but would have, you know maybe show it one or two episodes a, a season. One of them was Beast, one of them was Jean Grey, and one of them was the Professor. And imagine this core team working. Without the professor as the you know this heart and soul head of it, mm-hmm. without Jean Grey being the emotional center, I mean she can talk to everybody on the team in the way nobody else can. Right. And Beast is just so cool and different. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, so he's he's the, it's like in a live action show, what happens sometimes in a pilot is there'll be a secondary character supposed to be gone after three episodes and. He, the chemistry is so great that they keep them on. Like in, uh, well, there's two great examples of that: the Fonz and Steve Urkel. Those were some, <laughs> those were marginal characters. Those were marginal both of those ca- shows, and then everybody's like, "Yeah, I don't care about anybody except for these two. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go with Jesse from Breaking Bad. Right. Those yeah. are excellent yeah. examples. Yeah. I, I'm just uh, I'm just speaking to what I knew going into uh, cartoons. So so, so so to answer to answer you, six or seven were kind of handed to us, yeah. but three or four just were Mark and me being trying to be the storytellers and thinking. These guys have to be there, and so they asserted themselves to the two of us. And nobody gave us. A, it was interesting that they were that loose about it. They were fine. Uh, that's the reason Beast was in jail, was in jail at the beginning. Right. We just thought he was going to be in an episode, and then he'd be away for eight episodes, yeah. and we'd see him again. But then we kept using him again and again and again. And and as a writer, uh, was there anyone more fun to write than Beast? Oh. And, and <laughs> finding, finding, in finding those quotes he's, he's, that uh, you know he would eloquently you know share. Every and finding episode. those quotes using your old Roger's yeah, yeah. yeah, no, 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 well, you, you can't Google like you know famous quotes. You yeah. couldn't. Yeah. You That's couldn't. Bartlett's famous quotes. Yeah. yeah, we had a couple of dusty old uh, uh, like thesauruses <laughs> or quote books from mm-hmm. college. And yeah. it just came in in the op- in pred in, in Night of the Sentinels when Beast is going on and has his first quote when he's kind of hanging from a uh, ceiling and going past things and lifting his legs up. Um, in com in in action uh, cartoons, almost every place has a every show has a call to action. It's even yeah. a term that they use. Yeah. And instead of Kawabunga or something, instead of something. <laughs> cartoony like that, I said, well, it's Beast. He's going to say something obscure. So I just looked up in my quote books under legs. (laughs) (laughs) And and there's this 17th century British uh, uh, poet who's never been quoted on any other TV show or movie ever again before, ever after. That's amazing. And there was this, yeah. Uh, So it that, and then, then everybody enjoyed it so much. Everybody said, "Oh yeah, that's cool." He's, he's this quote. So then we challenge the writers. So and as come, writers, we try and yeah, out- <laughs> yeah. come up with a more obscure quote than we, than we did. That's so fun. <laughs> 
Oh, that's great. Uh, so uh, in terms of the, the look of the show, I, I know that the, you, you touch on this in the book. The As it's being developed, the idea was, you know, there was a very distinct look at this time period that uh, was created by Jim Lee. Right. So obviously you wanted to replicate that because it was hugely successful. I mean, there had been a new X-Men number one. It was a second series. And I believe it's still the best-selling comic of all time. Uh, if it's not, it's still it's still way up there. And uh, But of course, all of a sudden, behind the scenes, corporate machinations were, uh, yeah, we don't want you to have it look like Jim Lee because... Because he, Todd McFarlane, and all the other guys are leaving to create a company to rival us. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that process and, you know, sort of how you were able to address this note of like, yeah, you can't look like this anymore. Oh, yeah. So this this was, we had maybe seven or eight major crises along the way, any one of which could have ruined the show. Wow. And this was one of them. And most of them were solved by Will video he'd been he'd been in the business 15 years he loved the characters and he just you know he was drawing a line in the sand he said we we we, we won't do it. so he had designed this whole world and all these characters and storyboards were being drawn and we were going on. and then suddenly we get the note from marvel with no explanation we none of us knew about all the artists leaving uh, uh up there saying oh you can't use this, the style that you've just spent six weeks doing, yeah. you have to come up with something completely different. And the and, clock's ticking. Uh, yeah. The train has left the station. Yeah. There is a date. For We're February. late already to deliver our shows for the fall. And, exactly. and Will's furious and he says, no, he knows this is right. He knows this is what will animate best. He knows this is what it needs to be. So instead, of, and he had no leverage. He couldn't just call Marvel and say, forget it. I mean, he could ask, try to ask Fox to tell Marvel to forget it, but Fox yeah. wasn't going to fight this. They didn't. They didn't it, have any reason. To yeah, fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Will just okay said fine, and so he quickly drew up uh, a a master uh, uh, view of they say the ten characters that looked absolutely horrible, that looked like Scooby Doo, Hanna Barbera versions of these characters oh. and set it in seriously with yeah. a note saying okay uh here's the new look i uh, we're ready to we're ready to move on it i'll tell the artists and you know everybody <laughs> you know amazing. marvel you know stanley the other artists that working under will ran up to his office and banged on his door will you can't be serious you can't be serious and you know he pulled him aside said, no please just, yeah, just. and so <laughs> marvel got the, marvel got them as oh fine you can keep the Jim Lee look, you know, uh, if this if this is going to be the alternative. So he put his job on the line. Mm-hmm. And as he said, the worst case would have been if they liked it. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is a real gamble. Yeah. Imagine I, if we got that. I don't think I would have watched it as much. <laughs> now, I noticed you didn't include those designs in the book. Do you have them? We or are they, don't. Okay. I we wish. I, I just wondered I if, they were, if they were so bad you just couldn't. Oh, no, no, no. no. I, we <laughs> have reached out to Wilminio, and we think they're lost to the sands of time. Uh, but, Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, things that you were talking about in the book about, you know, there's these crises. Uh, one of them <laughs> that is, I'm sure it's easy to laugh about now, was uh, merchandising. Specifically, oh. how you needed to use these walkie-talkies. Uh, I wanted you to uh, explain that for the yeah. audience. Wow. Yeah, well, there were, there were two merchandising problems. One of them was, uh, was the Playmates, who had just signed on and become a partner with, with Marvel, called and said... We have, you know, Wolverine had walkie-talkies and pajamas and drapes and things. You have to 
put them in the show. When you say Wolverine head, you mean it was a, it, it was, was like, so it's like a wolf, it's, yeah, so and, shaped like Wolverine's and head. And so Will again, he called him, said, you know, <laughs> and 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 put this fire out and said, look, in what world would Wolverine be talking on a walkie-talkie that looked like a toy of his head? Right. You know how you know the, you've just ruined the show. Please, we'll put in. Oh, well, I think one of the things was like uh, the Blackbird. Okay, we'll show sure. more. We'll show no pictures of the Blackbird because you're trying to sell one. But we're not going to do the walkie-talkies or the drapes. And <laughs> the, worst, the one worse than that was came close to shutting down the show and making the producers lose the job. And that was an Australian McDonald's deal mm-hmm. for little toy, little Happy Meals, which had like Storm in the little three-wheeled <laughs> buggy. Mm-hmm. And you know, she flies. Does she need any kind of vehicle? No. And word came in that oh no you have to you have to put these in every episode you have every to episode. feature every episode you have to feature <laughs> oh what God. what these people drive like in little Shriner cars driving along this and and Will said no and the word came back evidently you know they you know, McDonald's had sent a big check to Marvel so it made a lot of difference they said well if you don't say yes we're going to fire you and fire the production company growls off the show. It went back and forth. Margaret Lush, to her credit, backed them up. And after about a week of tension, where we didn't know if we were going to lose our entire production right. company over this, mm-hmm. they backed down. Wow. Yeah, yeah which, uh, I don't know. There must have been someone who realized, like, yeah, but won't this make the show terrible? You know? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it's uh, it's money. not always... Yeah. yeah There's the, money the involved. Right. Uh, there are uh, some other uh, uh, crises to talk about, but one of the things that I wanted to <laughs> that fascinated me, just from a writing standpoint, is the importance of having distinctive voices for the different characters. Yeah. And I think your great shows will always mm-hmm. be like, no, you can't switch the dialogue around. Yeah. Like Spock says this, Kirk says that, you know, Scotty says that. You're not going to give a Scotty line to to Kirk especially not to Spock. Uh, <laughs> but I love the examples that you use, which are basically Winnie the Pooh and Sex and the City. Yeah. And just they're like different ends of the spectrum, but it's like, oh, yeah, I know. Piglet doesn't say Tigger stuff, and Kanga doesn't say Eeyore stuff. You know, uh, so uh, talk a little bit about sort of, you know, sitting in a writer's room and explaining that to people, that like, well, yeah. these are the two the two universes you need to look at. Yeah, <laughs> that, we, did, we did that. But don't cross-pollinate those right. stories. That's not, yeah. what, that's not what anyone's looking for. No, no. So, yeah, and you're right with Sex and the City. The four of them are completely different characters. There's a reason it's so successful. And this came to be because we've, worked, as I say, worked on 40-some different shows. And when you're starting off a show and you have executives there, say marketing people or whoever it is that has different agendas for the show. Um, they don't necessarily understand this. They haven't had to sit down and write 40 pages with the characters. They may want all seven characters to look and sound the same. And we, we reference we use not because it was a bad show, but because, like G.I. Joe's, they tended to have fairly inter, you know, interchangeable dialogue. And it, you know, to me as a writer, it's just a nightmare. Well, you've got seven people on screen. Who do I give the line to? Yeah, they, well, all, they and, all would say it exactly the same and, way. And GI Joe, they would all say Yo Joe at some point. Yeah, so, yeah. sort of negated <laughs> exactly. what's before it. Yeah. So, so we used. So I specifically, you know, I try to think of five or six really good shows. I mean, Friends is one. I mean, the, the Friends are very different. Yeah, There's sure. six, six different people, but mm-hmm. Sex in the City and Winnie the Pooh were uh, okay. This will, and when I say you know, it's like Sex in the City and Winnie the Pooh. Suddenly at the meeting when people are having breakfast and trying to decide who are going to be the characters <laughs> in this movie, suddenly they paid attention and I, I was it helped me get the point across. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, th- I thought that uh, that was uh, particularly uh, interesting. Uh, we're having some uh, great comments in the Ooh. chat. Uh, and uh, Star Drew, uh, one of our uh, loyal viewers and listeners, points out that yeah, he remembers uh, he remembers a, a, a toy that his uh, mom didn't want him to have, so he <laughs> liked hearing uh, about all of that. Uh, and then you're seeing a lot of people who uh, immediately, when the show became available on DVD, they, they bought it, and that's how they you know sure. were able to continue watching it. Mm-hmm. And I remember the uh, Pizza Hut VHSs. Oh yeah, yeah. Pizza Hut VHS. <laughs> yeah. so. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I definitely miss those. Wow. I don't know how I miss I'm from Hawaii. I miss a lot of stuff. I'm going to be honest with you. It wasn't until I got older that I was like, I can I can get all these things now. <laughs> you know, the VHS tape, just yeah. that was such a huge deal at the beginning of the show because, again, you hey, you were a college boy. You had a VHS I, I had, machine. Yeah, Ooh, well, it was uh, very important. Yeah. I'd gotten one for my 18th birthday, and that thing came to college with me. <laughs> well, it, it's hard to, again, remember how expensive videotapes themselves yeah. and pre-made videotapes were back then mm-hmm. and it was not casual to buy a pre-recorded video uh, uh, buy a show of something yeah. and then Pizza Hut had this yeah. you got your little pizza we still have those little pizza we've boxes we've got the boxes and we've we got, got the, the cups, and the cups oh my God. and the placemats with, with, with the X-Men <laughs> on it <laughs> and, but the VHS tape of um, uh, Night of the Sentinels part one and part two and then the, the, the second three the second uh, the third and fourth episode were on the other tape oh right yeah right. Yeah, I but don't that know was. I missed that. Yeah, no, yeah. you can, you can find. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that. Yeah. commercials on YouTube. Which it was wow. it was really cheap. It was at the it was at the slowest speed, so it was really a, a cheap tape to make. Yes, and, pe- and people wore them out. Yes, yeah. for uh, yeah. people of a certain age, you'll remember SLP and yeah. EP <gasps> versus LP and SP yeah. because you're like, oh, if I use that speed, I can you know record six, six hours. hours. Right, I can get a lot of episodes. Mm-hmm. I can get twelve shows on that. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, going back to um, things that potentially derailed the show oh. um, the late great Stan Lee was a beloved elder statesman yeah. of Marvel and he's been I mean everybody loves his cameos in the Marvel movies He's yeah. uh, we all look forward to him as this awesome thing um, but talk about how much his desire to be involved in the project might have derailed it <laughs> <laughs> if, if he'd been given his way yeah. 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 But, but let us just put it here we, we got the chance to work with him then and we got the chance to work with him since that point oh. Oh. Yeah, we, three we or four all more. Three we're or four more family. times. We, yeah. 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 No. No. We're, and we're yeah. being very clear that we're not trying to speak badly. No. Of them, no. Oh, never. But like, just, never. It was, it was a. It was. It was a bad. It was a bad mixture. Uh, uh, it just. We all. All these people that most of whom idolized him, and and looked at him as somebody that had changed comics mm-hmm. in the early sixties, uh, and and stood by his guns when people were saying, "Oh, you're. This isn't the same way they used to do comics. What are you doing?" Uh, Stan kept to his vision, and he created. You know, he's like, he will forever be the biggest name in the history of comics. There's no way anybody's going to get close. Um, unfortunately, what happened with us was he had done the show in he had done the book in sixty two, sixty three at the very very beginning mm-hmm. sixty three for eighteen months, and went on. He had, he created so many things so fast that he dabbled in that. He wanted when in nineteen ninety. Two, 29 years after he and Jack Kirby came up with the idea of X-Men, the brilliant idea of X-Men, he really didn't know the tone, the folks. He didn't like, he he would be shown current books, he didn't care for them, didn't care for the ferocity. He wanted to write them younger. He wanted them to be simpler and lighter and jokier and and wanted it to be what he had created, which was uh, uh, you know, Xavier's school for uh, you know, incredible young... Incredible. Gifted, uh, gifted, gifted youngsters. youngsters. <laughs> uh, and so 
imagine thinking of Wolverine as a gifted youngster. It's just it's that tone <laughs> difference during it's the like, Civil War. He was right, a gifted right, youngster. Right. <laughs> so so it was just it's just like you know there's this wonderful music from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever that I can listen to again and again. But this was 1992, and it was you know uh, garage bands and mm-hmm. and this was. It was not the same world that he had written the show in, and yet he wanted, when we were halfway through, two-thirds of the way through doing producing the, the first season, he came in and said, no, 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 no I, I do this completely differently. And Margaret so trusted him and so respected and revered him that she said, okay, we have to have a meeting about this. And luckily, Will and, you know, Will, who... Again, idolized Stan, but knew in his heart, and everybody at the current Marvel knew in their hearts that it was wrong to change it, but nobody felt like they could confront Stan about it. And so Stan was, in effect, standing there saying, well, we need to throw out a couple months of work and redo it with a this gentler, younger tone that uh, that I hear in my head, but which I don't see in the scripts. And we were brought in front of the head of Fox Studios, somebody I'd never met before, yeah, and I just had to shrug and say, "Look, you hired me to to run the show. If you want, I can't write it the way Stan's asking me to, and we can't. We don't have an extra three months to redo everything we've already done. If you want his show, I'll step aside. I mean, it was one of those. I'll walk away from the best job I ever had, wow. but I can't. So, Will it, again, nine out of ten of these problems, Will found a way. He he." He became like the Henry Kissinger. He became the, the <laughs> diplomat. He said, look, um, I will get the notes from Stan. I'll sit down with Eric and tell, and I'll tell Stan the ones that we can't do because they're just, they screw up the, the connected story. And a lot of his notes, he wasn't thinking about, you know, the next episode. He was just looking at this first one. Oh, right. let's change. Let's not have Gambit in here. Let's, well, we need that for later. So Will would tell him the ones we couldn't use, take the ones that maybe we could, and he'd talk to me, and we'd find, you know. And after we did that on a couple, uh, the first three or four stories, Stan kind of backed off, and it was all fine. But that first meeting, it was a, we need to completely overturn this show, uh, or one of us is walking. Yeah. And it's not, again, going back and remembering, when he created the books, they were doing okay, but then they kind of the X Men well, tapered the, off. The X Men spent years as uh, reprinting previous stories. Yes. yes. So the reason that the all new, all different X Men came up in I think seventy four, uh, and that's you know Len Wein does this giant size X Men, and then Chris mm-hmm. Claremont writes the actual monthly or actually right. bi monthly. It came out every other month. That's yeah. how unpopular the X Men were, which is so crazy. It came out six times a year. Yeah. That was all yeah. you got. So yeah, that original version of the X-Men, those characters, you know, the the, the original X-Men was not particularly popular. I mean, it, it was one of the, I would say, the, the, the least successful of all the different things that Stan did. And obviously, I can understand that idea, though everybody, you know, revered him so much. Reading about it, it was very reminiscent of when you saw or you read about the creating of Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. And Gene Roddenberry, who, of course, there'd be no Star Trek without him, genius and all that. Mm-hmm. 
but the way that he was looking at things was not the way that was going to work in 1987. And, you know, you you want to hear him out. You want to hear what he has to say and you want to be able to make it all work. But it, it doesn't it doesn't. So it just seemed very much like that. And Stan had done the earlier shows. He had, uh, you know, he would narrate Spider-Man's Amazing Friends. He did some narration at the beginning of Pride of the X-Men. And what I learned from your book he wrote the theme song for Pride of the X-Men, which, uh, let's just say it's not great. But uh, he's, look, he's a very talented comic book writer. As a songwriter, he's a great comic book writer. Uh, and so I guess there was also this idea of having Stan sort of on camera like a Walt Disney introducing right. the stories, which, uh, just from a time standpoint, would have cut, I don't know, a few minutes out of the, the very jam-packed stories you were trying to tell, right? Yeah. And what you just said in, in a Walt Disney kind of way, that's a different approach to setting the tone for the entire series. You're a young collegiate. Are you going to sit there and watch someone come in and say, hey, guess what you're about to watch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not, you know. And speaking to that, one of the surprises with the show was discovering how broad the audience was uh, very early on with the show. You were not the target demographic. No. <laughs> no that, um, the thing that amazed uh, and confounded and delighted the people at the network was that not only did we hit the you know teen market, which you'd assume we would with our, the intensity of the shows, but we also were number one with obviously with, with adults. That made sense because we're the most adult show on Saturday morning. But also in the other place, you know, six to eleven, even like the three to five, you know, the preschool. Yeah, I was three when that show yeah, came out, yeah. and I think I started watching it at five. And, 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 I, and I think <laughs> yeah. I think the reason was is that. The little kids missed ninety percent of what was going on, yes. but, but but it <laughs> you was really do. but it was really fast paced and the colors were mm-hmm. really spectacular mm-hmm. and it moved like like kind of like nothing else. So it was kind of fun to watch with your nine year old older brother. Yeah, and so we we get we get all we, these demographics. Say, You're, what do you mean three and four year olds are you know it's the it's winning its slime slot, it, but it, but it did it just yeah. went, it did the whole it did the whole spectrum. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I don't necessarily think, I mean, maybe for some kids, but I feel like it it's not necessarily a bad thing to introduce kids to things like that a little bit younger, because it, I, I feel like shows even like that, they kind of teach you about the world from a younger age. Like, looking back, you watch um, sort of the relationship with Jean and... and um, uh, Scott. Scott and my brain is Logan. Logan, Logan thank yeah. you. There's sort of that sort of that that dynamic that as a kid you're like, oh, that you know, I didn't know things like that existed. And sort of it it teaches you, I think, growing up. Did you intend to do that, or you were just writing the story and that just happened? I think we're just writing the story, but um, uh, what what we told because Margaret Lesh, we I mean, we had a meeting specifically about this and about because she was getting so much pressure to make it younger from outside people. Mm-hmm. And we said, look, kids aren't going to get... I mean, we had that experience with Bullwinkle. Bullwinkle there's all sorts of as incredible... As, as, as some little kids watching the show, all sorts of incredibly strange, erudite uh, references in Bullwinkle. Nobody gets his Marshall McLuhan jokes in Bullwinkle. <laughs> but uh, they said, look, if a kid watches this, he's not going to understand, uh, you know, marriage and sexual attraction, but he'll understand between like between those three that you've got a friend that you care about, you've got another friend that you care about, and they don't like each other. Yeah. And and the emotions are the same. They're just over different things. And so he so said almost everything that seemed too adult in 
frustrations, uh, you know, job frustrate. Kids don't have job <laughs> frustrations, but they have they have play frustrations. Yeah. That's true. So it's she bought it. She said, she said, yeah, you, you know, keep keep doing this. But that was that was a concern, and I think it does translate down. And speaking of that, if I can bring up morph. Yes, please. Oh. Morph. I, and before we even jump into that, I, we mentioned Margaret Lesh, Will Minio, Larry Houston. Sidney Iwanner was Margaret Lesh's uh, right-hand guy there at Fox Kids in every script for every episode of every series, I believe. Oh, for, 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 for Spider-Man, for Batman, for The Tick, for, the, for everything. Yeah. He, well, micro, he micromanaged. He's <laughs> who gave me all the detailed notes, not Marvel. But uh, also a woman named Avery Coburn, who was Fox Kids' head of broadcast standards and practices. And you're not going to hear many times when folks say positive things about the folks who are the censors of the shows. But Avery Coburn understood early on what X-Men was trying to do as a TV show for uh, Saturday morning on Fox Kids. And you and Mark Edens, when you guys were given the task of crafting the first 13 episodes, the decision was made, how do you show that this is heroic? How do you show their consequences? And you and Mark said, we need to have a death. And she, it took her about three weeks to come around. I mean, the number of things like that. There was like the the show about about faith and God, where Wolverine meets Nightcrawler. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are really heavy duty things that the network could get a million nasty letters. It used to be letters. Now, now, <laughs> now, now, now it's tweets. Tweets. <laughs> a million nasty tweets about. Uh, um, but she said, "Okay, I trust you to handle this sensitively." And I understand why you, you're putting it in. She actually read and liked the books, so she was. You didn't have. She was. Many of the censors of the time didn't care about kids' television. Didn't care about comics. They just they had a job to do, and they had a, a set of rules that you know you don't hit people, you don't get angry at people, you don't you know, just list, 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 list. And when uh, a unique thing like the 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 uh, religious one with uh, uh, Nightcrawler came up. She took the time to think it through and said, yeah, get, show me. And then she gave us some parameters, but she said, make this as intensely about faith as you can, which is, you know, whoa. And, and just for the audience out there, you just absolutely don't understand the power these people have. <laughs> Anything that she didn't want in the show would just have not been in the show. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Anything. Absolute. So, Absolute. So if it's there, it's because she okayed it. And uh, one more thing about Morph. For the record... He was supposed to stay dead. It was not oh. supposed to be a soap opera death. He was supposed to stay dead. And yeah, chil- children I, ruined it. Uh, yeah, well, children <laughs> ruined it. And uh, as uh, when we were speaking with uh, Chris Claremont just a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago, it, you know, uh, a lot of times when you write that someone stays dead, someone else says, uh, no, actually, Gene's not dead, no matter how you know great that sacrifice was. Uh, but it's so funny that you mentioned the popularity of Morph because... Uh, Jenna James in the chat. Morph and Logan's jokes that first season were priceless. Uh, Hope we get Morph in the MCU. Uh, And uh, I saw another one about Morph, but I guess it did. But yeah, so there's a lot of love for Morph. And yeah, I I found it to be fascinating that, uh, you know, it was important to have this death. And look, I I don't know we can say with uh, any certainty, but if it wasn't the first death on Saturday morning, it was pretty early on, you know? And what you were saying about, you know, the way that uh, exactly executives looked at children's television. I mean, you just have to look at some of the Hanna-Barbera shows from the 70s where they put in a laugh track because they were just like, well, kids... On a cartoon? Kids, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and I remember as a kid, I'm like, 
well, I understand why Three's Company has people laughing, but why does Jabberjaw? You know, like <laughs> like who's who's laughing at this? And like, and by the way, it's also not funny. So why are they laughing? So at you least know, you knew that as a kid. Well, yeah, you didn't I, just blindly <laughs> take it and be like, "This is funny." <laughs> well, he was a talking shark, <laughs> Jabber, Jabberjaw. So I oh. should have just laughed at him. Okay. But anyway, so yeah, and and I think just the idea, and that's why you know this your story being set, you know, your real life story being set when it was, it was just sort of this idea of like. Well, what if kids' television is is actually better? Let's see how that goes, you know. And I think the the popularity of this show and Batman and Spider Man and so many others, I think we're like, okay, well, let's let's see what that is. Um, one part of the process that you guys uh, put specific care into that was unheard of for the genre was the voice talent, and uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and uh, how how it went initially when you uh, you first heard uh, the dialogue <laughs> and when you first heard the dialogue on audio cassettes yes. that had been mailed to you in old fashioned manila envelopes from Canada yeah. from Canada where yeah. they recorded yeah cuz it was there were the their their uh, union actors union had a cheaper deal so our and, and we had a tight budget and so there we were in Canada yeah. but that wonderful wonderful people up there and they'd done shows for us before like Two years before, a couple of years before, they'd done Beetlejuice with us mm-hmm. up there, and oh. and just really, really sharp, talented people. But they cu- didn't quite get on the first pass that we wanted this to be a serious drama, and so we got a very cartoony, over the top, uh, just absolutely, completely wrong set of tapes for the first two episodes sent down to us. And we just, okay, the show's over again. <laughs> and, and so Sydney, I wonder, the guy from Fox, Margaret's right-hand man, whose passion fueled all these half dozen of excellent shows from there. He and Larry Houston, the, the art, artist director, and a couple, a couple people from Marvel. Maybe Bob Harris. Bob Harris and Joe Calamari from right. Marvel went Great and name. spent a couple weeks in uh, Canada, which they probably maybe should have done to start with, but we didn't know we were gonna, we, they were going to not get what we wanted. Sure. Um, and they recast and they re-recorded and they took, they, they, they told that they recorded the first episode four or five times. And this was in Toronto, which uh, allowed them to think outside the box. Right. And, and so they, and Sydney said, we want serious people. Ask for theater people. So they got, Oh. People like P- P- Professor Xavier and Magneto, both of whom were like Shakespearean actors, In as the was Beast. Scene. Yeah, so they got these people with gravitas in their voice mm-hmm. that could play serious adults, and they, more importantly, directed them straight. And finally, we got what we want. And there's all sorts of fun stories about <laughs> we didn't we don't have the right. Rogue, we don't have the right rogue. Rogue didn't want to do it because it was a cartoon and they were all kind of silly. And she finally gets talked into going in and she talks for five, five seconds and everybody's jumping around in the control booth saying, that, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's the voice. <laughs> and the same thing with Wolverine. Yeah, well, uh, obviously that is such a you know iconic voice work uh, by that actor's name is Cal Dodd and you know he continued to do Wolverine on other X-Men series which uh, you know I, I I don't know if anyone else has done an animated Wolverine since him but he was always you know it was almost like when subsequent series like uh, X-Men Evolution and Wolverine and the X-Men they were like oh he can't sound like anything other than this you know <laughs> and, and uh, I'm sure that must have been great for him but it was just a testament to how much he was that character it's like how we talk about for the films at some point somebody's going to play 
play Wolverine again, Oof. but it's just like, yeah. well, how do you imagine it, you know? And, you know, he just so perfectly had it, but uh, I would assume that this was not a character he as an actor was particularly familiar with. He didn't know, he d- he didn't know who the X-Men were. Right. right. He just was brought in and, and he said, well, who is this Wolverine? What is this guy? And Sidney said, well, he's a short guy from Can- from Canada. Uh, and he's got, feral. He gets he gets, <laughs> yeah. he gets got pushed a lot, got pushed around a lot. He's tired of putting up with it, and he's feral, or you know, he, yeah, he's yeah. and so Cal just, uh, just did the Wolverine growl <laughs> yeah. into the microphone, and that's when everybody jumped up in the control room. And they knew. So yeah. that growl happened right then, yeah. at yeah. that moment, and and, and do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so and, and interestingly, the the guy that almost would have had Wolverine if he hadn't was the guy that ended up being Cable. Oh, okay. oh. Lawrence Bain. Mm-hmm. They had this. They had the same agent. Wolverine, <laughs> Wolverine had never done a cartoon before. Caldon had never done. A, he was. He did. Uh, uh, I think car commercials. Car commercials. Yeah, 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 he, he, he was a jingles single. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. singer, very yeah. talented singer. Buy your Chrysler at Toronto Chrysler. <laughs> Cannot yeah. picture that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So cabaret show with Caldon as Wolverine, I think, is something that. Uh, How perfect is that? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was going to say, I would like to see that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also kind of feel very similarly about the voice actor who did uh, Gambit. I all I want is a live action version of Gambit that talks. Exactly like that. Right. <laughs> That's like all I want. We have not gotten a Chris. good on-screen gambit. <gasps> and yeah. I love me some Taylor Kitsch. I love him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Again, it wasn't some, his fault. Th- yeah. I know. And that, that Channing Tatum <laughs> gambit movie that has you know, stopped and started so many times. Have. Yeah, I know. Exactly. We got the best gambit on that show. Um, but we, I feel like we have to talk about the theme song. Sure. Um, because <laughs> it is so iconic. It's such an iconic part about the this, this show. And it's one of those ones that as soon as you hear it, you walk around singing na 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 like it constantly gets stuck in your head um, <laughs> take That's us true. through uh, the process of how to open the show the consideration of having narration or and then right. how you got that piece of music yeah yeah well the uh, Stan Lee had pushed very hard for narration and the rest of us thought that that well we, we, we actually tried he, he wrote one up I wrote one up uh, he had talked Margaret into giving it a try and Will Minio was dead set against it and we never got anything that we liked very much written out. I'm sorry, we're talking about the opening narration, the opening, which will go yeah, over yeah, the opening over, yeah. These are the X-Men. Da, 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 right, da, da, right, yeah. right, right, So, and Larry Houston, to his credit, uh, had loved, as I did when I was little, the opening uh, credits to uh, Johnny Quest, which is just like a minute of t- tight action from the show uh, with 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 music thumping music behind mm-hmm. it so he was trying to think of something similar to that so he drew out a storyboard and will minio you know helped him with it they basically did it in two days two that days. that that, that, that glorious days. that glorious wow. opening that introduces yeah. everybody yeah and then the song took longer uh ron wasserman wonderful uh composer who also composed uh the Teenage, power rangers power rangers yeah. opening so this one guy and got you know zero royalties for either one he got his uh, he got his he was a contract we, composer he was, he's working on weekly salary so in either case so he was used to for spawn entertainment which was a uh, uh had done kind of lower rent shows to just like turning in something being done, turning the next thing, being done, and because they didn't much care, just as long as they filled the, the time with with it there. 
But so in this one, he turned something in, and Will Minio and Sidney Iwater, who were kind of overseeing it, said, no, 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 make it more intense. And they sent it back, and they sent it back, and they sent it back. And Ron complained. <laughs> he said, I wanted to kill him. They sent it back to him over 20 times yeah. and say, layer it, layer it, layer it, layer it, make, make it more intense, make mm-hmm. it, drive it harder, more layers until we know it's the X-Men theme. And when they finally got the final version, they all said, ah, this is it. Yeah, it's almost like the the sort of the blueprint for you know primetime television from the '80s. You know, shows whose themes are arguably better than the shows themselves, like the A Team, Magnum PI. Yeah. Like you know those pieces of music, and you're like, oh my god, this is so great. And I think that it, it really captured that so well. And you know, it is one of those things. And I, I assume you've seen the video. I don't remember which movie it was, but you you had uh, you had James Mac boy on set and he was trying to explain the cartoon series to Michael Fassbender, Fassbender. and he's yes. like singing the, yes. the he's like well and the theme song went like this he does the whole song <laughs> yes. like, ah. and you know so it just it, it sticks with even you know like on screen Professor Xavier you know yeah, which I yeah. think is is very funny uh, sort of speaking about the, the differences between the animated series and the movies uh, before we completely run out of time one of the things I was talking to you about beforehand was that the, to, to date we've had three versions of the Phoenix Saga on a screen and the one in the animated <laughs> series is so far and away better. Now you, the best one. You, you did it's have the best one. <laughs> you, you, you had a little bit of, a, of, I guess, a little bit of a wider canvas, but I guess the running time it's probably about the same. Yeah. And the animated version is so good. And X Men: The Last Stand was such a bad attempt. They took the most exciting story from Marvel Comics and made it boring. This is just me saying it. Yeah. And then the no, Dark Phoenix movie we got last year, uh, I thought some parts of it worked and some really didn't. But it was just like, oh, the, and I think what your your show did was obviously some of the characters are different, some of the situations are, are different, but it's like, well, why did that work in the comics? Let's try to make it work on our show. And how conscious was it approaching a story that was so highly regarded in the X-Men canon? It was, it was a challenge, and uh, for the first one, we had done two seasons uh, and had just ridiculous runaway success so we which we, no one expected no, i want to emphasize me. that yeah yeah, we, yeah as I, as we say in the book we were all let go after the first season because yeah. they just thought it, the show was going to fail yeah. and they had to hire us all back uh but they uh after the first two seasons marvel was getting serious about this because this has become a, a big money maker for them suddenly they're selling merchandise they've got a show that's working in hollywood this hasn't happened before so they brought us up to new york for a two or three day meeting after we'd done 26 episodes to look at episode uh, season three, four, five, they were going to commit to three more right there. And I said, okay, they'd give us a list of people they'd like to see, maybe kind of kind of stories they might like to see. And they said, look, we're going to do the Phoenix Saga, the Dark Phoenix Saga. And, you know, we're serious about this. These are our big ones. And so I went to Margaret and said, okay, we've got some extra time now because they've committed to three seasons in a row. Let me just work with Mark and his brother Michael, who were friends of mine from college, and we'd written together hundreds of things before this, and we kind of knew each other's voices. Mm-hmm. And so, you'll, of, of the four or five partners, you'll notice it's the, the first Phoenix Saga, it's just Mark, Michael, and me. And so, we broke it down together, and Mark has this, this I can't get the quote exactly right, but he said, the laziest thing to do is change something when you're adapting it is you know, kind of to make it yours and give it a twist. So the hardest thing to do is to look at it, respect it, 
and try to make the best version of that for your new medium. Right. So from the beginning, from episode one, but we were just looking at it and saying, well, what is special about the story? What is central about it? And what could kind of be pared away? Because there are things that work in comics that will work in TV. And there were lots and lots of subplots. Uh, Chris would juggle five or six different stories at once sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we could do two or three maybe, but you lose track uh, TV's kind of more linear, at least Saturday morning TV was to us. Right, and comic books by their nature have so much internal monologue, mm-hmm. they're thought balloons. And, and you can and, catch up and, on things. And especially yeah. Chris Claremont, who, you know, the, the one page would have so many words on it, like, yeah. you know, to try and literally translate it, I, yeah. I can't even imagine. So so try, so we, we try to streamline it a little bit and focus it a little, since it's all happening to Gene, have that as the center, emotional center of it, and start with Scott and Xavier and I mean it was happening to Xavier too because Lalonda was coming down but the the two people that were most affected by that were Gene and Xavier and have our other people kind of being secondary and watching what they're going through and and dealing with their they're going through and keep the story simple and straightforward so it was it ended up being a little over 100 minutes the 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 five parter uh, so that's that's a, that's a feature movie length, mm-hmm. and I don't you know I can't tell you why I think uh, the film critic uh, Brian Lowry, who's like the best critic in the in the history about TV and about TV animation, just believes that comic books work, work better in animation. It's like my favorite Spider-Man movie is the recent animated Into one. the Spider Verse, right? Yes. Yeah, I think it it's the best, fantastic. the best one, best version. And I don't know if it's because you're suspending a little bit of disbelief when you're dealing with superheroes and aliens drifting down and whatever, and that w- when you're drawing it and seeing it animated, maybe you accept it a little easier. I don't know if they were put worried about that in the feature movies because. Obviously, we didn't get a lot of Lalandra and Deken and and all of that big space battles and things happening. No gladiator. No gladiator. <laughs> yeah, none of that stuff, which which translated fairly easily for us into action animation. But I just I think I I don't know if the film people were scared to go to go this odd or this slightly larger than life, or they just had other agendas. But I think by keeping as close as we could to the books. The wonderful books that you know mm-hmm. that they did in these two stories, it's it's what saved us. I definitely think that also a lot of the times with things like animated shows and, and movies, you can do a lot more for a lot less. Like you can do so much more when you're animating it as opposed to what it would take to show that on, you know, with CGI. Like that would cost so much. It would take so much time. Like it's and not that animation doesn't take time because I know it takes a very long time. <laughs> but there are just I feel like there are more things you can do with that. Um, but it. Sadly, it came time for the show to end, and that was unfortunate. Um, but talk about how you initially envisioned the end, which would have included introducing the new X-Men team, which was, you know, had some well-known characters like Bishop and Psylocke. Right. Funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, it was kind of seat-of-the-pants flying at that point. You know, X-Men was doing very well, and you had been assigned... Uh, up through season four, yeah, which was five, sixty-five episodes. Yeah, and and wow. so that was that, that was, was the standard amount everybody would buy in those days because you could run those four times a year, five days a week, mm-hmm. and that that, was, that would fill up a year. Right for sixty-five episodes would, and so we absolutely were planning to finish. And so Sydney actually came to me and to Mark and said, "Make up a big, huge four-parter, kind of like one of the 
Phoenix sagas to end up with a bang. And so that's why the you know beyond good and evil with the the, the axis of time and all that that was we threw everybody we could throw from every episode into this thing, and which was a bit of a juggling act. And the the through line for us was as you said we wanted to have this cool moment where when the story's over five of our X Men leave and four new people become X Men, and that would have been you know, very satisfying. And the four that were going to stay were Bishop and his sister Shard, who are from another time. But and now stuck in a Yeah, they're, yeah. they're stuck here. They can't get back. And Psylocke and Archangel, who we'd w- woven into the story from the very right. beginning, they're going to stay on. And Storm ha- and Professor X. And, and Gene and Scott and one other, I think, maybe Jubilee. We're leaving. We're leaving the show. So, we're going to leave. So yeah, it would have been Scott's a... perpetually trying to leave. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's, he's definitely like Godfather Three. Every time he thinks he gets out, they pull him back. Yeah, they pull him back out. <laughs> so we got pulled back in because we'd written a whole 160 page script. It <laughs> and, exists. It and, exists. And we're told suddenly, "Oops, we need another 11 episodes from you guys with the original team. Don't have them. Anybody leave. Don't have everybody stay. But keep the story. Just, just what <laughs> the whole reason you did it." is going to be thrown out the window, but keep the story, please. Mm -hmm. What was it? And I assume as with everything in entertainment, the, there's the answer, the short answer is money, but why were there suddenly 11 more episodes? My understanding is to, to, to what they call strip an animated series during the week. You need 65. Right. So, uh, 79 was just, they were just like, well, let's just get more commercials. We've asked a dozen people over the years. We could never. The Grazianos don't know. Uh, Sydney Iwanda doesn't know. Margaret Lesh doesn't remember <laughs> why those last. And it was in two bits. It was six and five, or five and six. Right. But, right. Uh, and so we start writing some more. And, and somebody had a financial interest. Somebody was investing money, or somebody was. But yeah, there was no normal, rational reason to yeah. do more than sixty-five. Right. Uh, and we've never we've tried, but we can't find the yeah. answer. I mean, in looking back, we're glad that we have that many more stories. But I can see how frustrating it was for you. So, how do you feel about what is the last episode? Uh, graduation Special. day. Yeah, I, it makes I, us tear up. Yeah, <laughs> it still does. I, I'm deeply pleased. Is that the right word? With that, I would just as a fan of shows. Sometimes the shows end well. Sometimes they don't end well. But just or sometimes as, they don't end, like uh, The Sopranos. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, and <laughs> but but I really I, I mean I may be uh, uh, prejudiced here, but I really think it worked. I think seeing the X Men in effect watch their father die and yeah. go off to heaven with Magneto there. It's, Still get chucked out. Yeah. Sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, how many creative people involved in shows uh, don't get to end in a way that they're satisfied with? Someone else takes over the show, you know. I mean, you get to see it a little bit more now, but, yeah. you know, it, it's... And then sometimes it's like, well, we have an ending, and then the network's like, yeah, how about more episodes? So <laughs> that's fairly common. I mean, there was, yeah. you know, a show I referenced earlier. I mean, there was an extra season of Magnum P.I. after they had killed him off. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's not really dead. Just kidding. And, you know, and it's just like, and then when shows finally end, you're like, ah, we're just, we're just done now. So I think you guys are, are you're very lucky that you're able to have that. Uh, now, oh, and Jim Krieg, I just want to mention, as oh, a yeah. writer on that one. Yeah, yeah, the writer on that was his first. It was his first episode. That's right. Oh yeah. wow. Oh wow. And, so the, his so the final episode was his first. episode. The first one he'd written. Yeah. Oh wow. 
Um, well, now, obviously, it's so much fun to look back at the creation of the show, and anybody who wants to know more should certainly pick up previously on X-Men, the making of an animated series. Uh, we're talking to both uh, Julie and Eric Leewald. Um, but, of course, a, a question we absolutely have to ask you, because it comes up all the time, because I, I, I see people interacting with you on Twitter and the X-Men TAS Twitter. They, uh, Everyone always seems to want to know, well, what does it take to get the X-Men animated series running again. And my question is, is it even possible? Because you had you had Fox, which conveniently now Disney owns, but then you also had uh, Saban Entertainment, mm-hmm. and you know you had all these different arms. Yeah. Is it even possible to try to, to do that? Uh, I don't think it's a rights issue anymore because Disney's bought up the whole world, which, yeah. which, makes, which makes it easier for us. For a long while, they and Fox each owned about half the rights. Right. And so they wouldn't be interested in taking our phone calls because because nobody wanted to do anything with animated X Men. Mm-hmm. It was just too too messy. Yeah. Uh, but now that Disney can do stuff with it, I we know for a fact that they're frantically thinking of the next iteration of X Men for movies and yeah. for TV. So you know, uh, we wish them what we'd love. The we've actually asked. There have been a number of producers that have called us and said. Uh, well, we've we've heard you have an idea for a sixth season. Uh, can can I invest in this? Can we talk? You know, get Marvel to do this, and it's kind of like that's kind of not the way it works. I mean, yeah. the current people at Marvel are going to be the ones that decide what the next iteration is. And we've asked all because we've interviewed all the cast and and the crew for the book, so we know every, there's maybe two or three people missing from the core writers and yeah. and cast and artists. Everybody loved working on the show. Everybody would do it again in a heartbeat. I mean, these people like work, but yeah. on, on top of that, they, they love doing the show. So you could assemble the same team that we had before, basically. Yeah. Um, but that's – and we do it, and we've had <laughs> sure. lots of fans asking us to yeah. do it. But – I, I'm just not sure that's the way Hollywood works. But is this the point where we go Disney Marvel? Yeah, yeah. Is that, if anybody's <laughs> well, listening, yeah, we're yeah. ready. We're ready. Also, I think if people tweeted enough out yeah. there, if <laughs> everybody just keeps tweeting Disney, that happened with um, the actor who plays Lee, he, he plays, Lu, who Shang plays Shang-Chi. Chi. Yeah. That's yeah. what happened with him. I mean, if we just keep putting it out there, maybe they'll <laughs> see it and they'll listen. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I mean, it's like obviously, especially with them having you know their own streaming service now, and you know when Disney. Plus Plus launch. Look, there was a lot of stuff that people were commenting on, but I saw a lot of people were like, "Oh my god, I get to watch X Men the Animated Series now!" <laughs> and uh, the, one of the most common tweets that I saw was, "There's this option where you can skip the opening." Oh. Everybody's like, "No, I want to see the song. I'm not going to skip it." Like, skip Zia, you're watching opening? it that way yeah, right now. Of course, I don't and, skip okay, the opening. Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah. Uh-uh. No way. <laughs> uh, I, we we've uh, we've gone a little long, but I don't okay. want to miss out on getting some of the questions uh, from the chat. Uh, I think this is a sure. great one from our friend Star Drew. Uh, he's wondering if you're each able to isolate one character as your favorite, Ooh. each of you respectively. That was a quick yes. Oh, well, we, we, we kind of batted this one around a bit, but as um, as one of the writers on the show, just Beast, because you got to pretend you're the smartest person in the room when you were writing for Beast, and he's got that romantic soul. And, you know, as a character in the world of mutants, he was the most obviously other, and yet he was the most at peace with that, Technically, but there was a lot going on uh, in him as a character uh, dealing with that, and I just found him 
wonderful and romantic and smart. Oh, yeah. He did have that really romantic story, heartbreaking storyline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think everybody wanted to write for Wolverine because he's so easy to write for. I mean, the, <laughs> the angry rebel, and we had to kind of pull back to keep it from becoming the Wolverine show. Um, but my favorite to write for absolutely has to do with my position in the in the work. Where over the course of seventy six episodes, I had twenty different people writing for me right. over the five years. And so I felt very much like Professor Xavier being the father figure trying to keep everything going in the right direction and everybody on the same page and pulling with the same oar, however you want to say it. But so I had great sympathy for him as the guy with the responsibility for for the X-Men. So I I got a, had a real empathy for Charles. Well, if we're talking favorites, Zia, who stands out for you? Storm. Storm. I just love Storm. I, I love how theatrical she is, too. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. She's like, call up the winds, and it's like, that's amazing. You're just like, yeah, call the winds. And, you know, we're not sure why why we started doing that. I don't think it's quite that way in the books, and people have asked the case. No, she doesn't usually do that. I think there are instances where she did, yeah. but it wasn't like every time. You know, sometimes it's like, well, how about a rainstorm? Yeah. You know, it, was, it was very, you know, yeah. inarticulate. It was just like, oh, I need a lightning bolt now. I yeah. think my favorite out of context for her is, I shall meet you at the monorail! Yeah, and there's uh, just some great memories from people in the chat. Uh, chat uh, Grassy and Ryan talking about watching the show on Saturdays uh, with their mother. Uh, so, you know, you always like to, to hear all of that. But yeah, you can get just an overwhelming thing about you know, the idea that you had this show and then the Spider-Man animated series, Batman animated series, all in the same time period where you know, it's it's very easy for me to remember, you know, what it was like at a certain point where just having something bad on TV, you know, like there, there are these incredible Hulk TV movies that have Thor in it and Thor looks so terrible in it. But I'm like, oh, but it's Thor. There was Daredevil was in it. But it was just like I was so excited to see these characters that it's like, well, at least I get to see them on screen, you know, when you mm-hmm. finally and I don't know how much of it is really just because. Look, I think that one of the best superhero stories on screen is still uh, Richard Donner's first sp- uh, Superman. Yes. But the the Tim Burton Batman was just like, yeah, but what about like this? You know, <laughs> it was just like everybody thought about things completely differently mm-hmm. because, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's just do more Adam West Batman, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it, and when you saw Batman in, in cartoons, obviously it wasn't like that. And these were characters that you had to just be a fan of the comic books, and, and so they were more marginal. So I think it's great that we we got this this era that, you know, you wouldn't have your 24 Marvel MCU movies if not for the late 80s, early 90s of, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the... The uh, the somewhere there were network executives that said, yeah, but what if we make it good? Which apparently <laughs> before that, yes. you know, there's a Doctor Strange TV movie that I suggest everybody just go out and check out for just examples of things that didn't work. There's a live action Spider Man TV series where he shoots rope out of actual it. rope. Yeah, actual oh. rope. Actual yeah, it's not rope. Webs, it's actual rope. So it's so bad. Uh, anyway, uh, I I personally could uh, speak with you all day, I know. and uh, I hope <laughs> that. We have uh, we have more to talk about uh, in the future, but uh, I highly recommend the book for fans of the X Men and for fans of the animated series. Uh, Eric Leewald and Julia Leewald, where do people uh, keep in touch with you online? Please at Twitter. I'm on it way too much. We're at X Men TAS for X Men the animated series. We have um, a web blog that we're 
also X Men the Animated Series. And we try to be on Instagram, X Men the Animated Series. So, yeah. <laughs> any one of those things you can find us and, just to speak and, about this. And that's how this interview came about. Was I? I basically tagged you in Twitter and was like, "Hey, it would be uh, great if you did it." And it's like, "Oh, well, we live just a few minutes yeah. from here." Yeah. So yeah. Really well. That's and what Eric, Twitter's Where do for. people keep in touch with you? Uh, th- those places. She's, <laughs> she's, our, she's our social media yeah. manager, and so I just kind of help out. I, I put all the about 160 anecdotes and stories and images on on, right. on the web page, but. Right. But she, she 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 maintains it all. Yeah. Try to. Yeah, so. there's so much we didn't get to that was in the book, so I highly recommend it to people. Thank you. Uh, and uh, hopefully we get to chat again soon. Zia, where can people keep in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Zia underscore land. That is XIA underscore land. And come hang out with me on Sundays on twitch.tv slash Zia land. I'm going to start playing some horror games, so if you want to do that, Sundays at 3.30. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Christian DMZ. And if you're watching this on Thursday afternoon at 9 p.m. tonight, we will be doing the first episode of the Star Trek Picard After show so please join us there i hope that everyone enjoyed it as much as i did i stayed up to watch it premiere at 1201 a.m so i was watching it right up until 1 a.m this morning because uh, i just wasn't going to be able to sleep so please join us there it'll be the same crew from our star trek discovery show and of course you can find zia and i on marvel movie news every thursday at one pacific and of course marvel news daily the short little feature that we do over there at popcorn talk uh, that's all the time we have now, but as the great Stan Lee would say, Excelsior! Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later! <laughs> The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.